Welcome to the addendum, a thing added. On this podcast, Pastor Eric Williams will add to, clarify, and supplement the most recent teachings at Fellowship Renewed Church. I wanted to address two two particular areas today after just having some time to reflect on yesterday. I hope that you found that the the text was was meaningful to you in whatever stage of life that you're in. That was my hope because all of scripture is applicable to all of us. And I understand that sometimes we need to see things from a particular angle or perspective in order for those uh, applications or implications to come to light for us. And this may be one of those for you, but I hope that you found it helpful, insightful, practical, applicable to you in your life uh, in whatever stage that you're in. That was my hope. Now, I want to I focus in on two particular areas today, the first being um, on this idea of, of singleness in particular as it relates to uh, godliness, okay? Singleness and godliness and what that might look like. And then second, I want to talk a little bit more about the eternal nature of singleness in as, as far as it relates to how we're going to understand or potentially relate to others in the eternal state. So more on that in just a moment. So let's look at this first idea. And as we do, I'd like to just look at our text from yesterday. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. So I'm going to just read that first. And then we'll uh, get into this first idea. It says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so that was our text. So not only is it ideal for uh, this person to marry, it is better. Uh, It actually is better for them to marry for a particular reason. But looking at singleness, for someone to remain single, um, for some, it's not that this wouldn't be ideal for them to remain single, but actually it, it would be worse for them to remain single for some. So this depends then on the gifting of God, doesn't it? Some are gifted in one area concerning marriage. Some are gifted in another area concerning marriage. And the question is, how has God gifted me? And understanding all that comes along with that, because we also mentioned that the gifting of God as it relates to marriage, that is either marriage or singleness, is not necessarily uh, monolithic for a person, but it it may change with your season or phase of life. Now, talking about this idea of singleness, is it always better? And the answer to that is no. And in fact, it may be worse. And I'd like like to read for you. This is out of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verses 20 through 23. Listen to what it says. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, that's the end of that text. That is Colossians 2, 20 through 23. So what is this talking about? Paul is telling the, the church here that there are some who force restrictions. They force singleness. They force indulgence in particular uh, foods and concepts. And, and what he's saying is that these indeed, these restrictions have an appearance of, of wisdom and promoting a self-made religion and severity to the body. What is severity to the body? Because when you restrict yourself from particular things of this earth, such as foods and uh, marriage and all that comes along with that, he says these have an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, but here's the issue. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you may say, how does this apply to, to, to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7? You may say, uh, I'm going to force myself into singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God, because that's better. But simply making restrictions on your life, it does have the, in a sense, it has an appearance of wisdom and self-made religion. But you have to understand that if you restrict yourself, this has... It has no benefit. It's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can't decide that you're going to live a life of singleness should the gifting of God not correspond to what you're attempting to do with your life. So in other words, if God has not gifted you with singleness and you attempt to be single on your own because you think it's more godly, that restriction on your life is not going to stop the actual... Uh, desire of the flesh inside of you. And so that's why I believe this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right. So a a question here that we might ask is if they can't exercise self-control, remember he's talking to believers. So he's saying for you believer, if you can't exercise self-control, in this, in this area, then you should marry because that's better. But there seems to be some kind of conflict there because all Christians in all circumstances ought to be having self-control. So what does he mean? He doesn't just say, well, just have better self-control then. No, he says, then you should marry. And I think we should find that interesting. Galatians five nineteen through 26. Now the works of the flesh are evident. The works of the flesh. Flesh in this context, meaning uh, flesh is being associated with that of sin, the old, uh, the old life, the world of darkness. Uh, works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orages, and orgies and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, this is important, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, so that's a description of those who are in Christ Jesus. That uh, that takes one side and the other. There is a side of, of darkness, and there is the side of light. There is the this, this side of the unredeemed, the side of the redeemed. Those who are believers, those who are non-believers. Those who have the Spirit of God, those who do not have the Spirit of God. And of those who do have the Spirit of God, this is what is said. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those things have been pushed away and replaced. And this is where it's indicated there in verse 23 that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. That is, if the Spirit of God is alive in you, living in you, it will be indicated by the fact that you have self-control. Self-control in all areas. Self-control, being a fruit of the Spirit, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality being evidence that the Spirit of God is not in you. So, I would just say this. If you have sexual desire, that is not inherently sinful. Uh, God has given this desire as a gift for a particular outlet for marriage, for intimacy, for children. So the issue is when you have sexual desire and this desire is not directed toward the one and only God-ordained outlet for sexual expression, which is marriage. Everything outside of that is sexual immorality. So maybe two thoughts on that. If you cannot exercise self-control and you are married, you should see last week's passage. And if you do not have sexual desire and you are married, again, you should see last week's passage. So it, it speaks to all sides of this situation, and I, I hope you see that. So that's that's the first thing I wanted to cover. Second thing uh, is really just some supplemental passages on on this idea of the eternality of singleness, which again, maybe may be a bizarre thought to you, maybe new, or maybe it's not. Maybe this is something that you've, you've seen this in the text already. It's, it's nothing new to you. And so we were talking about how uh, Jesus was cornered by the Sadducees, thinking that he wouldn't be able to answer them about the resurrection. And he said, well, you misunderstand. You don't, you don't know what the scriptures are actually talking about, and you don't understand the reality of these things. Because in heaven, uh, people are neither married nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. Okay, so in the eternal state, then, we are not married. How then, this is a question, kind of a question of implication. How then will we relate to people in heaven? Because that relationship, relationship between husband and wife, God has made very unique, special in his plan and if we do not retain this most special of relationships in heaven, then what kind of relationships do we retain in heaven? How do we relate to other people in heaven? Um, so just a couple ideas about that. Um, and maybe less ideas than some passages that speak directly to this. Okay. 
So first, I have four here, four passages. They're pretty short. The first is Revelation 2.17, just that one verse. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's one thing we know about the eternal state is that you you will be given, that as believers will be given, a new name. And what does it say specifically here? That no one knows the name except for the one who receives it. Okay, so something is different. We're, we're given a different name, and name is identity. And so what is it? Uh, I'm not going to answer this right now, but just one of the thoughts that lead into that is, what is our true identity? Because a lot of times we think of our identity, our person, as our memories and experiences. So what memories and experiences will we retain in eternity? And if we do retain memories and experiences in eternity, will that not bring sorrow? But there is no sorrow in heaven. Just some things to think about. But what we do know, uh, we're given a new name. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 4. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. And if you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the question here uh, is is interesting to consider because how in the world did they know that these figures were Moses and Elijah? And it's not like they had pictures of Moses and Elijah. These guys who had lived far before this period of time, how did they know what Moses looked like? They wouldn't have known, okay? How did they know what Elijah looked like? They would not have known, but they knew who they were. Did they look like they looked when they were on earth? We don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I would have to argue, though, you know, when we're thinking about that eternal appearance, um, there are a lot of indicators that it will be different because you have to think about what, what, at what age are these people uh, in their eternal state, right? What age do they appear? Uh, questions like that to make you think about appearance. But anyway, there's a point here. And I think it's answered for us in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 16. That very day, two of them were going down to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus drew near with them. And verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, so there was Jesus. They know what Jesus looks like, but they didn't know that it was him. So what does this tell you? Jesus looked different. But then, jumping ahead to verses 30 and 31, in the same story, he was at the table with them. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So there was something that the Lord did by his spirit in them that enabled them to recognize someone that was of different appearance. So although they looked different, they were able to recognize Jesus for who he was. I believe that helps to answer the, the situation with Moses and Elijah as well. Why are we talking about these things? Uh, we're just considering uh, 
how are we going to relate to other people in heaven? And I think the ultimate answer to that is uh, the Lord is going to do something miraculous and we get a glimpse of it right here. And so just as we think about these things, we want to give God all the glory and praise as we think about that great day in the eternity that he has promised for us. Thank you for joining us on the Addendum Podcast. For more information about Fellowship Renewed Church, visit frcsparta.com. Please join us for next week's episode.